Hello, and welcome to the reading of The Courier for Tuesday, January 10th. And I am your narrator, Peter Welch, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. All right, what's on the front page of The Courier here today? Dear Farm Bureau Sign Pack, Farmers Given Choices for Equipment Repair Under New Agreement. A long-standing battle between farmers and John Deere is being resolved. On Sunday, the American Farm Bureau and John Deere announced a memorandum of understanding which permits farmers to choose where their equipment is repaired or to repair it themselves. Previously, only authorized dealers could repair Deere equipment. Deere issued the following statement on Monday. The agreement with the American Farm Bureau formalizes the long-standing commitment Deere has made to ensure our customers have the diagnostic tools and information they need to repair their machines. We look forward to working alongside the American Farm Bureau and our customers in the months and years ahead to ensure farmers continue to have the tools and resources that they need to diagnose, maintain, and repair their equipment. According to the Memorandum of Understanding, equipment owners will now have electronic access on fair and reasonable terms to manufacturers' tools, specialty tools, software, and documentation. According to a new news release from the Farm Bureau, the agreement formalizes farmers' access to diagnostic and repair codes, as well as manuals, operator, parts, service, and product guides. It also ensures farmers will be able to purchase diagnostic tools directly from John Deere and receive assistance from the manufacturer when ordering parts and products. Farm Bureau President Zippy Duval said in a statement that equipment is a major investment and farmers need the freedom to choose where equipment is repaired or to repair it themselves in order to control costs. The MOU commits John Deere to ensuring farmers and independent repair facilities have access to many of the tools and software needed to grow the food and the fuel and the fiber America's families rely on, Duval says. According to the Department of Justice, an MOU is a non-financial collaboration with partnering organizations that shows they have consulted and coordinated with one another with the intent to form a contract. It is not legally binding, according to Investopia. Multiple class action complaints were filed against Deere, alleging that the company has monopolized the repair service market with onboard computers called engine control units, of which the software and tools necessary to fix are inaccessible to farmers and non-Deere repair shops. As previously reported, right-to-repair policies would give independent dealers and Deere's competition access to parts, software, and information that would let them repair the Deere equipment. According to a report by the U.S. Public Interest Research Group Education Fund in March of 2022, if all dealerships and mechanics took advantage of the policies, the number of repair options in Illinois would at least double. Okay, let's go now to Cedar Falls. Professor recalled for his love of the arts. Day's work as reviewer, fueled by his passion. George Frederick Day, undoubtedly, 
was a strong supporter of the arts and someone who'd welcome a conversation with any human, no matter where life had taken them. A longtime University of Northern Iowa English professor with a passion for Western American literature passed on December 7th at the age of 96 in his apartment at Jones Harrison Senior Living in Minneapolis with his daughter Georgina Ludkick and son John Day beside him. Day was a former board member and president of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony Orchestra and the Western Literature Association. He worked for the Courier as a music reviewer of the symphony's performances, University of Northern Iowa Department of Music's productions, and numerous other local and visiting performances. He, too, took to the stage on occasion and performed at the Waterloo Community Playhouse at least twice, including as Horace in Hello, Dolly! in 1973, and as Henry VIII in A Man for All Seasons in 1974. And he had a great admiration for many local greats, including the late poet James Hurst, whose legacy lives on at the Hearst Center for the Arts, and Dennis Downs, the recently retired director of the Cedar Falls Municipal Band, to name just a few. David Day, his son, called his father approachable and and respectful to anyone in any station in life. It was about the local people who made efforts to perform and create that was the basis of living for Day. His reviews with The Courier were unfairly positive as he worked hard not to dwell on the shortcomings, David Day said. It was about capturing what someone was attempting to do, said David Day. He loved the people and the local and the live entertainment even more, he adds. He liked watching people he knew make music. He brought that small-town sensibility. Day grew up in Superior, a small town in Nicoles County, Nebraska, and was eventually the proprietor of the Day and Freeze Lumber Company. But he was drawn to classical music and literature and the arts because of his upbringing. Among the influence, said David Day, were his two aunts, one a pianist and another a painter. His mother played piano while his father studied the musical arts, and his first wife, Ann Day, was a water colorist. From his grandfather to his father and to his aunts, they were all just appreciative of literature and music and the arts, said David Day. He loved the lumberyard. It was his grandfather's and his father's business, but he wasn't completely fulfilled and happy. While he loved local talent, he himself was not a musician, and promoted efforts to bring global and well-known acts to town. Why can't we have all this in Superior, his son recalled, him saying about the town he grew up to love and cherish. But he wished it had been more artistic personality. It had more artistic personality, rather. Eventually, George Day succeeded in bringing some of that culture there. We had a wonderful upbringing and traveled to a bunch of places because of Dad's changing career, said David Day. He graduated from high school in Superior in 1943, and after that, the attack of Pearl Harbor enlisted in the U.S. in the United States Navy. Classical music of the Romantic era caught his attention, but most of all, it was the Italian opera and the work of composers uh, that really made David Day's day. Day also pointed out that his humor and fun-loving nature. Roy Behrens, a retired UNI professor of graphic design, emphasized how he was terribly funny. People admired his knowledge of music and of the visual arts, said Behrens, 
and he was passionate about his own history in Nebraska, and he loved to go to reunions at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire, where he'd been a student and earned his bachelor's degree. All right, let's go to Des Moines. More conservative action vowed. GOP will focus on K-12 education, property tax, and reform in legislature. Emboldened by six years of conservative reforms under their belts and multiple elections that expanded their majorities in the Iowa legislature, Republicans kicked off the 2023 state lawmaking session Monday by promising more more conservative action, particularly on K-12 education and property taxes. The 90th Iowa General Assembly met for the first time at the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines. In the coming months, legislatures will consider hundreds of proposals to make changes to Iowa state law. Republicans hold commanding agenda-setting majorities, 34 to 16 in the Senate and 64 to 36 in the House. While that margin grew in November's election, this is the seventh consecutive year Republicans have held complete control of the state lawmaking process with majorities in the House, Senate, and a Republican governor. Jack Whitaver, the Senate Majority Leader from Grimes, used, used his opening day remarks to highlight many of those conservative law changes of the past six years, including multiple rounds of tax reductions, a dramatic reduction of collective bargaining rights for public workers, changes to election laws, and the judicial nominating process restrictions on legal abortions and the and the expansion of gun rights. Republicans in the Iowa Senate do not shy away from hard work or hard decisions, and Iowans have rewarded us for it, Whitaver said. With the historical successes we have had, I think it's safe to say that we are ready for bigger, bolder, and better. Democratic legislatures, unable to influence the lawmaking process with their votes, called on Republicans to work on bipartisan legislation that will benefit all Iowans. Zach Walls, later of the Senate Democrats from Coralville, said that lawmakers' focus this year should be on Iowa's stagnant population growth and shortage of workers. It's been called a brain drain and a workforce crisis. But really, this challenge is bigger than that. What we face is a people crisis, an exodus in the state of Iowa, Wall said. Whether it's growing and waits lists for child care or bigger class sizes in our public school or the shuttering of labor and delivery units at hospitals across our state, this crisis threatens the future of Iowa and is holding us back every single day. Everything we do this session should be focused on this crisis. Republicans pledged action on three main topics, property taxes, funding for K-12 private school students, and expanding transparency in K-12 public education. Republicans plan for a third consecutive year to work on legislation that would set aside state funding for private school tuition assistance. Previous attempts were supported by Governor Kim Reynolds and passed the Senate, but stalled in the House. During her successful 2022 re-election campaign, Reynolds supported challengers to incumbent Republican state lawmakers who did not support the private school tuition assistance bill. Speaking at the Republican Party of Iowa's annual legislative breakfast Monday morning, 
Reynolds said that voters gave Iowa Republicans a mandate to continue to be bold in pursuing an agenda that put parents and students first when it comes to their education, that fights back about the liberal woke agenda that's being shoved down our throats from Washington, D.C., and continues to keep our community safe. She called Republican dominance in the 2022 state elections a red tsunami that shows Iowans like the direction Republicans are taking this state. While previous so-called school choice proposals died in the House, Speaker Pat Grassley has been more optimistic about some form of legislation passing this year. He formed a new committee, which he will chair uncommon for a House speaker, to address education policy, including private school tuition and K-12 transparency. He said that the legislation will be House Republicans' top priority. Grassley added that while state-funded private school scholarships are an important part of the discussion, we believe it's just part of the much broader reforms that we will see, he says. Uh, Here's a great story. This is also in Cedar Falls. Jackpot fuels Cedar Valley dreams. $1.1 billion drawing for the Mega Millions lottery is tonight. In Cedar Falls, area residents are bracing for a near-record drawing Tuesday as the Mega Millions jackpot topped $1.1 billion. People love their tickets. Everybody has a thing they like to do, says Laura McKenney, assistant manager at Casey's General Store on Viking Road. When people win, I'm excited for them. The Mega Millions prize is now the third largest in U.S. history after nobody won it in Friday's drawing. McKenney said staff at her store can tell when lottery jackpots soar because traffic and ticket sales also spike. During the last record jackpot over the summer, employees at a local business down the street pulled to, put, to buy $400 worth of tickets, McKenney said. Stopping in to buy gas Monday afternoon, Crystal Greer of Tama opted to add a scratch ticket and a Powerball. She considered what she would do if she won a jackpot. Pay bills, buy a house, be humble, travel, just enjoy life, Greer said. She said she started playing recently. I've never really played the lottery before, but I've been having a lot of luck lately, she said. I just recycle whatever I win. No one hit all six numbers to win the estimated $940 million Mega Millions jackpot on Friday, pushing the lottery prize to an estimated $1.1 billion ahead of tonight's drawing. There have been 24 drawings without a jackpot, jackpot winner stretching back for more than two months. The winless streak is largely due to the game's long odds of 1 in 302.6 million. The new estimated prize of $1.1 billion is for a winner who chooses an annuity paid annually for 29 years. Grand prize winners usually take the cash option, which for Tuesday's night drawing will be an estimated $568.7 million. Mega Millions has just reached the $1 billion mark again. It's especially nice to see the jackpot grow throughout the holidays and into the new year. Pat McDonald, the Ohio lottery director and lead director of the Mega Millions Consortium, said in a statement on Saturday, as the jackpot grows, we encourage our players to keep within their entertainment budget and enjoy this jackpot run right along with us. The only Mega Millions jackpot larger 
and the estimated $1.1 billion opportunity Tuesday have been the $1.53 billion one in the South Carolina lottery in 2018 and $1.33 billion winning ticket in Illinois in July, Mega Millions said in the statement. Six Mega Millions jackpots were awarded in 2022, ranging from $20 million in Tennessee to that of $1.33 billion, one in Illinois, and everything in between. The most recent jackpot win was at $502 million shared by winning tickets in California and Florida in October 14th. Mega Millions has played in 45 states, as well as in Washington, D.C. and the U.S. Virgin Islands. You might be aware that Prince Harry uh, has a new book out, and also he was interviewed on uh, CNN and also on uh, CBS 60 Minutes. And here is a, a brief article regarding uh, Prince Harry accusing Kamala of dangerous leaks to the media. This is in London. Prince Harry has accused his stepmother, Kamala, the queen consort, of leaking private conversations to the media to burnish her own reputation as he promotes a new book that lays bare his story of his life behind palace walls. In interviews broadcast Sunday and Monday, Harry accused members of the royal family of getting into bed with the devil to gain favorable tabloid coverage, singling out Kamala's effort to rehabilitate her image with the British people after her longtime affair with his father, now King Charles III. That made her dangerous because of the connections that she was forging within the British press, he told CBS. There was open willingness on both sides to trade information, and with a family built on hierarchy and uh, with her on the way to being queen consort, there, that was going to be people or bodies left in the street. Harry spoke to Britain's ITV, CBS's 60 Minutes, and Good Morning America to promote his book Spare, which is to be widely released Tuesday. Some UK book uh, shops plan to open at midnight to meet demand for the highly anticipated memoir, which has generated incendiary headlines with reports that it includes details of bitter family resentments, as well as Harry and his wife Meghan's decision to give up their royal roles and move to California. In the interviews, Harry repeatedly blamed the media for the troubles that afflicted the couple, also known as the Duke and the Duchess of Sussex, saying that the coverage contributed to the rift with his brother, Prince William, and his wife, Kate. Well, here we are, a new year, and, you know, there are all kinds of predictions about what the stock market's going to do. Um, here's an article out of New York, Stocks End Up Mixed on Wall Street after early gains fade. In New York, U.S. stocks were mixed Monday at the start of a week with a few events that could shake markets, including updates on inflation and the health of corporate profits. The Standard & Poor's 500 dipped 0.1% after surrendering an early gain of 1.4% in its first trading after closing out its first winning week in the last five. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dipped nearly 113 points, or 0.3%, while the Nasdaq Composite gained 0.6%. More stocks rose than fell, and Wall Street largely positive start to 2023. Game on hopes that the Federal Reserve could ease up 
on its economy-shaking hikes to interest rates as inflation cools. Such rate increases already slowed parts of the economy sharply, and the fear is more big hikes could cause a painful recession. Treasury yields fell further Monday as traders adjust bets for what the Fed will do. They dropped Friday after data showed that workers are winning weaker raises than in earlier months. While that's discouraging for workers whose pay is still failing to keep up with the rising bills, it could ultimately mean less upward pressure on inflation. Okay, let's turn the page. Now we're on the Cedar Valley section of the paper. J.A. seeks Waterloo Schools mentors. More than 100 needed to volunteer in classes. In Waterloo, Junior Achievement of Eastern Iowa is seeking more than 100 businessmen and women to serve as mentors for 126 classes in the Waterloo Community Schools. The volunteers are needed for kindergarten through third grade, as well as sixth and seventh grades. Students learn from the mentors how money works, how education leads to career success, and how to start and run a business. Classroom volunteers can make a lifelong difference for students in as little as an hour, a week, for, for five to seven weeks. Junior Achievement, also known as JA, takes on everyone's matter approach in teaching skills to, to youths. This is important because showing kids that they have value, that their circumstance in life does not define who they are or who they can be, is invaluable. Jacob Christensen, Chief Executive Officer of Covenant Family Solutions and JA Board member, said in a news release, Volunteers do not have to have teaching experience and are not alone with students. They utilize a prepared curriculum developed by Junior Achievement USA that guides them through lessons and are supported by the classroom instructor. Junior Achievement staff members will meet with volunteers prior to the start of their program to go over classroom expectations and address any questions that the volunteers might have. Waterloo Superintendent Jared Smith said that the district has an invaluable partnership with JA. Our staff and students have benefited greatly from having real-life business representatives visit their classrooms, teaching valuable career lessons and sharing secrets for success, he said in the release. In addition to the in-class programs, Junior Achievement has three single-day experimental learning events that they take place this spring. And here's what they include, Careers on Wheels, which will take place outside of every Waterloo Elementary School in May for kindergarten through second grade. Ten volunteers whose careers have wheels that represent uh, construction and building jobs within the community are needed. The Virtual Health Science Career Fair for 3rd to 5th grade students. Volunteers in the field of health sciences are needed to help collect a video catalog of various careers within those industries. They'll be asked to share their work-related responsibilities as well as the education path that led them to success. The JA Financial Literacy Fairs, a real-life simulation where 7th grade students experience making impactful financial decisions. Volunteers will assist them in choosing things like their future home, education, and car at several stations, and adding that cost information to a budget worksheet. Students also visit a financial advisor who will go through their worksheets and talk through their choices. 
a minimum of 15 volunteers are needed to serve at each event, for a total of 60. To sign up, individuals can view available classes by going online to the following. It's HTTPS colon forward slash forward, forward slash engage dot ja dot org forward slash question mark site site equal sign dash j a e i cedar valley those who have questions or are interested in learning more about volunteering for the single day student experiences can contact amy fossum and here's the number 319 862-1100. I'll say that again. 319-862-1100. All right, what else is going on here on the on this page? Testimony of homicide victims are sought. Defense opposes defense, I should say, opposes move to use previous words. In Waterloo, attorneys for a Waterloo man accused of killing a man working on a motorcycle in 2020 are asking the court to disallow testimony from a witness who has since passed. Robert Lee Williams Jr., age 33, is charged with first-degree murder in the death of Vincent Hemingway. Prosecutors allege that Robert Williams and his brother, Raphael Williams, had planned to rob a drug stash house on August 15, 2020, but then turned their attention to Hemingway, who was fixing a motorcycle in an Adrian Street garage with friends near the original target. Hemingway was shot and killed, and authorities allege that Robert Williams pulled the trigger. Also arrested in the crime was Anna Burnbos McLemore, who was Robert Williams' ex-girlfriend and had allegedly assisted with uh, the planning. She and Raphael Williams were charged with robbery. Raphael Williams went on trial in April 2022, and the state called Bernabas as a witness, and he was convicted of a first-degree robbery and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Bernabas, age 26, remained free on bond while her case was pending. Then in the early hours of May 22, 2022, someone opened fire on a, uh, on a car in the 300 block of Manson Street. Bernabas, a passenger in the vehicle, was shot and killed. No arrests have been made in her death. Authorities said that they don't believe that the slang was related to the Adrian Street homicide. Now, pros uh, prosecutors want to use Bernabas' testimony from the April 2022 robbery trial and Robert Williams' murder trial, which is tentatively set for this month. Defense attorneys are objecting to the use of her testimony. They point out that they weren't able to cross-examine Bernabas and attorneys for Raphael Williams weren't focusing on their Robert Williams case during the robbery trial. Counsel in that case had the motive of asking questions that would most benefit their client, Raphael Williams. Their motive had nothing to do with whether the question or lack of questions would benefit Robert Williams, defense attorney Kimberly De Palma wrote in court records. Cases against two other charges in the robbery or Tamara Lynette Williams and Tonkia Venice Ven Jackson, who also remain pending in their cases. We were talking about the lottery uh, a few minutes ago in, on the program. This is um, uh, another article about this. This is a little more in detail. And it's, it says retailers have lottery dreams too. 1.1 
billion dollars, mega millions pot can be a bonanza for those who sell tickets as well. In Des Moines, an estimated 1.1 billion mega millions jackpot drawing Tuesday night as people lined up at convenience stores nationwide to buy tickets in long shots, hopes of winning a massive prize. But shop and gas station owners selling the tickets also have a chance at a big figure bonus. State state lotteries usually reward the owners of the businesses that sell winning jackpot tickets thousands of dollars or even up to $1 million, even before those giant prizes are claimed. First things first, though, what's the latest on the jackpot? It seems that no one can win the Mega Millions jackpot, so it keeps getting larger. So the last time someone overcame the odds of one in 302.6 million and won the top prize was October 14th. Since then, there's been 24 straight drawings without anyone snagging this jackpot. The prize now ranks as the fifth largest, though it's still only half the size of a record $2.4 billion Powerball jackpot, won only a couple months ago by someone in California. Well, it seems like forever since someone won, it's quite a ways from the record of 41 straight drawings that has occurred a couple of times, most recently leading up to that $2.04 billion in California. And who is the lucky Californian? Well, that remains a mystery. The California lottery isn't announced a winner, and it says its policy is to not acknowledge whether anyone has claimed a prize until a supposedly winning ticket is vetted. All that's clear is that a ticket matching all six numbers was drawn on the 9th of November and was sold at Joe Services Center in Aldena, an unincorporated community northeast of Los Angeles. If you buy a ticket, don't forget, whether you spend $2 or 200 on Mega Millions or Powerball tickets, your chance of winning are incredibly small. Powerball's odds of 1 in 292.2 million are a little better than those offered by Mega Millions, but they're still miserable. Can't get your mind around that? Well, Andrew Swift, a mathematics professor at the University of Nebraska-Omaha, described it another way, noting the odds of winning for a person who buys a single ticket in either game are a little worse than flipping a coin and getting heads 28 straight times. And don't forget this either. Although the publicized annuity prize of $1.1 billion for winning Mega Millions or $340 million for Powerball jackpot get all the attention, winners rarely choose such a long-term payment option. They want their money right now. The cash payout is much smaller, $568.7 million for Mega Millions and $178.2 million for Powerball. So, as you dream of buying a yacht, maybe for settling for just one rather than two, Mega Millions is played in 45 states as well as in Washington, D.C. and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And I would like to remind you that you are listening to the reading of The Courier. I am your reader, Peter Welch, and this is IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Yes, we do have some obituary news. Let's get to that right away. Donna Newman Coaster, age 60, of Aurora, Iowa, passed away peacefully on the uh, 1st of January here in 2023. A mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday, the 11th of January at the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Masonville, Iowa. 
Burial will be held in St. Mary Cemetery in Masonville. Visitation will be held from 4 p.m. till 7 p.m. at the Reef Family Center Funeral Home and Crematory in Winthrop in Iowa. And you can leave an online condolence if you'd like, and you can go to www. Re, I'm going to spell this R E I F F F A M I L C E N T E R dot com under obituaries. Elizabeth Lurson, age 95, of, uh, of Bella Vista uh, of Arkansas, has passed on the 3rd of January of this year. Funeral services will be 10:30 a.m. on Thursday. January 12th at the First Reformed Church in Applington with burial in the Bethel Reformed Church Cemetery in rural Applington. Visitation will be one hour before services at the church. Redmond Funeral and Crematory Services, uh, Applington Chapel is in charge of all arrangements. Amy Brooke Spears, age 41. Uh, has passed uh, on January 6th after a very long, courageous battle with diabetes. And a memorial fund has been established for her. Private services will be held. And I'm going to spell this one also. It's Van, and then that's Steezen Hughes. That's S-T-E-E-N-H-U-Y-S-E-T-E-N, T-E-A-H-E-N, Funeral Home of Vinton is caring for Amy's family. And condolences can be left at www.teahenfuneralhome.com. And in other obituary news, Sylvia Johnson has passed on January 8th of this year and at the age of 85 in Janesville. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday on the 11th of January at the Janesville United Methodist Church with Pastor Lori Riley officiating. The burial will follow in the Cedar Valley Memorial Gardens in Cedar Falls. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, the 10th of January at the Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Waverly and for an hour prior to services at the church on Wednesday. And if you need more information, you can contact Kaiser Corson Funeral Homes at 319-352-1187. James Platt, age of 94, has passed uh, in Cedar Falls, formerly of Waterloo, on the 4th of January. And visitations will be at 3.30 to 6.30 p.m. Monday, January 9th at the Lock. Funeral home on 4th, 1519 West 4th Street in Waterloo. Family graveside services will be held at Orange Township Cemetery. A cemetery, I should say, excuse me. Memorials to the Western Home Community, South Waterloo Church of the Brethren or Blackhawk County Conservation. Condolences may be sent to www.lockfuneralservices.com. Well, you might be aware that we have another uh, challenge health issue in our country. It's uh, unfortunately getting worse. Um, this article is called New Guidance, Use Drugs Surgery Early for Obesity in Kids. Children struggling with obesity should be evaluated and treated early and aggressively, including with medications for kids as young as 12 years old and surgery for those as young as 13, according to new guidelines released on Monday. 
the longstanding practice of watchful waiting or delaying treatment to see whether children and teens outgrow or overcome obesity on their own only worsens the problem that affects more than 14.4 million young people in the U.S. Left untreated, obesity can lead to lifelong health problems, including high blood pressure, diabetes, and depression. Waiting doesn't work, said Dr. Ennelly, a co-author of the first guidance on childhood obesity in 15 years from the American Academy of Pediatrics. What we see is a continuation of weight gain and the likelihood that they'll have obesity in adulthood. For the first time, the group's guidance sets ages at which kids and teens should be offered medical treatment, such as drugs and surgery, in addition to intensive diet and exercise and their behavior and lifestyle interventions. And Ennelly, director of the Center for Healthy Weight and Nutrition at the Nationwide Children's Hospital. In general, doctors should offer adolescents 12 and older who have obesity access to appropriate drugs in teens 13 and older with severe obesity referrals for weight loss surgery through situations, although situations might vary. The guidelines aim to reset the inaccurate view of obesity as a personal problem may be a failure of the person's diligence, says Dr. Sandra Hasnick, medical director for the AAP Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight and a co-author of the guidelines. This is not different than you, this isn't any different, rather, I should say, than having asthma. And now we have an inhaler for you, Hasnick says. Young people who have a body mass index that meets or exceeds the 95th percentile for children of the same age and gender are considered obese. Kids who reach or exceed the 120th percentile are considered to have severe obesity. BMI is a measure of body size and based on calculation of height and weight. Obesity affects nearly 20% of kids and teens in the U.S. and about 42% of adults, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The group's guidance takes into consideration that obesity is a biological problem and that the condition is a complex, chronic disease, said Aaron Kelly, co-director of the Center for Pediatric Obesity Medicine at the University of Minnesota. Obesity is not a lifestyle problem. It's not a lifestyle disease, he says. It predominantly emerges from biological factors. The guidelines come as new drug treatments for obesity in kids have emerged, including approval last month of Wegovy a weekly injection for use in children ages 12 and older. Different doses of the drug, called semaglutide, are also used under different names to test diabetes. A recent study published in the New England Journal of Medicine found that Wigovi, made by Novo Nordisk, helps teens reduce their BMI by about 16%, on average better than the results in adults. Within days of the December 23rd authorization, Pediatrician Dr. Claudia Fox had prescribed the drug for one of her patients, a 12-year-old girl. What it offers patients is the possibility of even having an almost normal body mass index, says Fox. Also a weight management specialist at the University of Minnesota. It's like a whole different level of improvement. The drug affects how the pathways between the brain and the gut regulate energy, said Dr. Justin Ryder, an obesity researcher at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. 
It works on how your brain and stomach communicate with one another and helps you feel more full than you would be, he says. Still, specific doses of semaglutide and other anti-obesity drugs have been hard to get because of recent shortages caused by manufacturing problems and high demand spurred in part by celebrities on TikTok and other social media platforms boasting about enhanced weight loss. In addition, many insurance uh, insurers won't pay for the medication, which costs about $1,300 a month. I sent the prescription yesterday, Fox said. I'm not holding my breath that insurance will cover it. One expert in pediatrics obesity cautioned that while kids with obesity must be treated early and intensively, he worries that some doctors may turn too quickly to drug or sur- drugs or surgery. It's not that I'm against the medications, says Dr. Rubert Lustig, a longtime special in, specialist in pedi- pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm against the willy-nilly use of those medications without addressing the cause of the problem. In conclusion, Lustig says that he has long blamed too much sugar for the rise in obesity. He urges a sharp focus on diet, particularly ultra-processed foods that are high in sugar and very low in fiber. Okay, now let's turn to the world news, nation and world news. Immigration on agenda. Mexican president says he might take more migrants expelled by the U.S. Mexico City. Mexican President Andres Lopez Obrador said on Monday in the uh, in the lead-up uh, to this week's summit of North American leaders that he would consider accepting more uh, migrants than previously announced under President Joe Biden's plan to turn away people from four nations who crossed illegally into the U.S. We don't want to anticipate things, but this is part of what we are going to talk about at the summit, Lopez goes on to say. We might support this type of measures to give people options and alternatives, he said, adding that the numbers may be increased. Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, cautioned that nothing was decided yet. What we need is to see how the program announced last week works in practice and what if any adjustment need to be made to that program and then we can talk about taking the next steps, he says. The comments were a reflection of the highly sensitive negotiations about migration, which will be a central issue during the two-day summit involving Biden and Lopez and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. All three nations are struggling to handle an influx of people arriving in North America, as well as crackdown on smugglers who profit from persuading migrants to make the dangerous trip to the U.S. Other issues on the table include climate change, energy, and supply chains. Sullivan said on Monday that the trip would be a good opportunity for President Biden to deepen his personal engagement with President Orbador and Prime Minister Trudeau. Ahead of the summit, Biden announced a major shift in migration policy, which was negotiated with Mexico. Under the plan, the U.S. will send 30,000 migrants per month from Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Venezuela back across the borders from among those who entered the U.S. illegally. Migrants who arrive from those four countries are not easily returned to their home countries for a variety of reasons, 
In addition, 30,000 people per month from those four nations who get sponsors, background checks, and an airline flight to the U.S. will get the ability to work legally in the country for two years. Biden arrived in Mexico on Sunday night via the new Felipe Angeles International Airport, a prize project of the Mexican president. The hub was christened last year with fanfare, though it's more than an hour's drive north of the city center, as few flights and until recently lacked consistent drinking water. Let's take a look now at News Digest here in the paper. Latest California storms brings more floods in Santa Cruz, California. Rain-weary Californians grappled with the flooding and the mudslides Monday as the latest in a series of powerful storms walloped the state, toppling trees and frustrating motorists who hit roadblocks caused by fallen debris. Tens of thousands of people remained without power, and some schools closed for the day. Meanwhile, rescuers ended the search for a five-year-old boy who was swept away by floodwaters in central coastal California. The number of deaths related to the storms climbed from 12 to 14 on Monday, state officials said. The National Weather Service reported that at least eight inches of rain fell over 12 hours, with several more inches predicted. President Joe Biden issued an emergency declaration Monday to support storm response and relief efforts in more than a dozen counties, including Sacramento, Santa Cruz, and Los Angeles. Chief, six-year-old fired mother's gun. In Newport, Virginia, the six-year-old Virginia student who shot and wounded his teacher, raised the handgun, pointed it at her, and fired while she was teaching his first-grade class, a police chief said on Monday. Newport News Police Chief Steve Drew on Monday offered his first description of the Friday shooting. Drew previously said that the shooting was not accidental and declined to elaborate. He said that the student pulled the gun out, pointed it at the teacher, and fired at her. Drew said that the child's mother legally purchased the gun in York County. The child put it in his backpack and brought it to school, the chief said. The teacher was wounded Friday in the shooting. Abby Zwiner was in stable condition Monday at an area hospital. For, that's fortunate for, for her. And uh, our good thoughts go to her that she will uh, heal quickly. Now let's look briefly here at document review. The Justice Department is reviewing a batch of potentially classified documents found in the Washington office space of President Joe Biden's former institute, the White House, said on Monday. Special counsel to the president, Richard Sober, said that a small number of documents with classified markings were discovered at Biden's personal, per, personal attorneys were clearing out the offices of the Penn-Biden Center. Ukraine. Officials at a vocational school in an eastern Ukraine, Ukrainian city dismissed Russian claims that hundreds of Ukrainian troops were killed in a missile strike there, saying Monday that a rocket merely blew out windows and damaged classrooms. Strike. Thousands of nurses went on strike Monday at two of New York City's major hospitals after contract negotiations stalled over staffing and salaries nearly three years into the coronavirus pandemic. As many as 3,500 nurses at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx and about 3,600 at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan were off the job. 
In Iran, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said on Monday that Iran's sale of lethal drones to Russia for use in its ongoing invasion of Ukraine means that the country may be contributing to, wide, to widespread war crimes. Election 2022. The U.S. Postal Service delivered more than 54 million ballots for the midterm election with almost 99% of the ballots delivered to election officials within three days, officials say on Monday. The Postal Service's post-election analysis showed that on average it took under two days to deliver completed ballots. And finally, remains identified human remains found in 1997 along Lake Michigan shoreline in western Michigan were identified as those of Dorothy Lynn Ricker, a Chicago woman last seen weeks earlier at a Wisconsin beachfront park, Michigan State Police said on Monday. Okay, now let's go to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, the Georgia grand jury ends Trump's probe. The panel findings now go to DA, who will decide on the indictments. The special grand jury in Atlanta that investigated whether then-President Donald Trump and his allies committed crimes while trying to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia has finished its work, bringing the case closer to possible criminal charges against Trump and others. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney, who was overseeing the panel, issued a two-page order Monday dissolving the special grand jury, saying it had completed its work and submitted a final report. The decision whether to seek an indictment from a regular grand jury will be up to Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. McBurney, who wrote in his order that the special grand jury recommended that its report be made public. He scheduled a hearing for January 24th to determine whether all or part of the report should be released and said that the district attorney's office and news outlets would be given an opportunity to make arguments at that hearing. Since June, the special grand jury has heard testimony from dozens of witnesses, including numerous close Trump associates, such as the former New York mayor and Trump attorney Rudolph Giuliani and Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Assorted high-ranking Georgia officials have also testified. And now let's go a little north here to Washington. House Republicans approve rules package, traditionally routine day one step, took two weeks to accomplish. New Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy passed his first test last Monday as the Republicans approved their rules package for governing House operations, typically a routine step on day one that stretched into the second week of the new majority. It was approved 220 to 213, a party-line vote with one Republican opposed. It's the start of a new era of potentially crisis governing. House Republicans lurching from one standoff to the next. That shows the challenges that McCarthy confronts in leading a rebellious majority, as well as the limits of President Joe Biden's remaining agenda on Capitol Hill. Republicans want to investigate Biden, slash federal spending, beef up competition with China. But first, McCarthy needs to show the Republican majority can keep up with the basics of governing. As McCarthy gaveled open the House on Monday, as the new speaker, the Republicans launched debate on the rules package, which is a hard-fought 55-page document that McCarthy negotiated with conservatives' holdouts to win over their votes to make him House Speaker. Central to the package is the provisions the Conservative Freedom Caucus wanted, 
that reign status, a long-standing rule that allows any one lawmaker make a motion to vacate the chair, a vote to oust the speaker. Okay, let's go to Rio de Janeiro. Brazilian authorities said on Monday that they were looking into who may have been behind the shocking uprising that sent protesters storming into the nation halls of power in a riot that had striking similarities to the January 6, 2021 insurrection at uh, the U.S. Capitol. In an unprecedented display for Latin America's largest nation, thousands of supporters of ex-president Jair Bolsonaro swarmed into Congress. The Supreme Court said that the presidential palace on Sunday, and many of them said that they wanted the Brazilian army to restore the far-right Bolsonaro to power and oust the newly inaugurated leftist president Lula da Silva. Also on Monday, the police broke down a pro-Bolsonaro encampment outside a military building and detained some 1,200 people there. The Justice Ministry's press office said the um, the federal police press official office, I should say, said that the force already plans to indict roughly 1,000 people. Lula and the heads of the Supreme Court, Senate and lower house signed a letter that denounced the attack and said that they were taking legal measures. Justice Minister uh, Flavio Dino told reporters that police have begun tracking those who paid for the buses that transported protesters to the Capitol. Speaking Monday at a news conference, he said that rioters apparently intended for the displays to create a domino effect nationwide. We think that the worst is over, Dino said, adding that the government is now focused on punishing lawbreakers and those who enable them. We cannot and will not compromise in fulfilling our legal duties because this fulfillment is essential to such events that do not repeat themselves. After his October 30th electoral defeat, Bolsonaro, who is now in Florida, has been stoking belief among his hardcore supporters that the nation's electronic voting system was prone to fraud, though he never presented evidence. His lawmaker's son, Eduardo Bolsonaro, held several meetings with former U.S. President Donald Trump, longtime ally Steve Bannon, and his senior campaign advisor, Jason Miller. By early afternoon Monday, the remaining Bolsonaro supporters dissipated as word spread that, the, that he was hospitalized in Florida for abdominal pain. His condition wasn't clear, but a photo published by Brazilian newspaper O Globo showed him smiling from a hospital bed. And finally, old ween meth dealer handed a 30-year term. Prosecutors argued suspect arranged being a witness. An Oween meth dealer who ordered the beating of a government witness and sexually abused women has been sentenced to 30 years in prison. Judge C.J. Williams sentenced the 39-year-old Justin Michael Bueller on Monday for two counts of distribution of meth in U.S. District Court in Cedar Rapids. Authorities allege that Bueller sold meth to informants twice in January of 2019. The sentence was enhanced based on the government's argument that Bueller had arranged to have a witness severely beaten by other inmates while they were awaiting trial at the Lynn County Jail. The victim, Ethan Lee Palmer, was punched, kicked, and beaten with a metal lunch tray by Johnny Church, also known as Drew and Drew Allen Blanick who had been convicted of murder, and another man. He suffered broken bones, orbital bones, 
a torn retina, chipped teeth, and other injuries. The court also credited Bueller with at least 15 adult criminal convictions, which qualified him for career offending status under sentencing guidelines. The case was prosecuted by Assistant United States Attorneys Jason Dorval, Norwood, and Pat Reinert. The case was investigated by the Iowa Division of, Narcotic, of Narcotics Enforcement. Well, that just about does it now for the reading of The Courier here for the 10th of January. And um, I sincerely appreciate your listening to me today. I am your narrator, Peter Welch. And you have been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Take care. We'll meet again soon. Bye-bye.